1: Remember all those debates we had over the FB Ref data? Well, it's time to find out just how wrong we were. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name's Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, you know the debates where someone says, I like this player, we should sign that player, and someone else throws up the green bars from FB Ref and goes, ha-ha, I can settle the argument with my fancy data that I got from this publicly available website. And everyone goes, what? That doesn't settle the argument. And then they argue more. It's fun. It's a never-ending story. It's a circle of life. But we're about to find out how it's really done because we are going to talk to the former Head of analytics at Arsenal, Sarah Rudd. That's right. She was head of analytics at Arsenal, uh, formerly of Stats DNA. Stats DNA, of course, acquired by Arsenal. She became the uh, head of analytics at Arsenal over time. Someone with a tremendous background, but also got into it as an Arsenal fan. Was an Arsenal fan. You'll hear about that in the interview. Um, it sort of drew her into football analytics. She's now uh, onto another venture pursuing. Uh, A similar area, but we're going to keep all of that very hush-hush and top secret. But it's an interview I've really been looking forward to because I think as we try to incorporate data into our process of discussing football, there are always going to be people that say, screw the data. Fair enough. Some people that say the data is dispositive. It is everything. You know, you do you. But there is a happy medium there. There is a way of understanding the value of this information without overstating the value of the information, understanding what it cannot capture and what it does try to capture and how it does that effectively and how it's implemented and also understanding how it's implemented within clubs and what they may have access to that we don't have access to, if anything. So all of those questions are on the agenda today along with much more. It is a uh, wide ranging interview where Sarah just gets to demonstrate her depth of knowledge uh, and I really enjoy it and I hope you will as well. So without further ado, He always says, prior to further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Elliot Smith, master interviewer, but most importantly, to Sarah Rudd. Enjoy. Okay, and so now it is my great pleasure to introduce Sarah Rudd. Hello, Sarah. Hey, how are you doing? Good. I really appreciate you making time to do this. I know you are uh, extremely busy, but I think there's so much that we can learn from you about analytics in football, maybe a little bit about um, analytics at Arsenal without stepping on any sensitive topics. But I think a good place to start is just your background in terms of why football analytics and why Arsenal in particular.
2: Yeah, I mean, so growing up, you know, there wasn't a lot of access to to football. Um, And then, uh, you know, when I went to university, this was after the, the World Cup in 94, um, my cousin had just randomly chosen Arsenal as a club to support and he would always be like, Hey, let's, let's go to the bar at like 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning, uh, <laughs> and go and watch, watch soccer. And I was like, Oh, that that sounds amazing. And, you know, so this was like the, the late nineties and it was just like a really great time, uh, to start watching Arsenal. And I just kind of fell in love with them and then, you know, had the pleasure of watching Camp but then Henri and. And CESC and just kind of fell in love with them. And then, you know, later on, eventually, as I started thinking about, you know, how can I work in football? How can I kind of make this career transition? Uh, I got my hand on some data. And I think the first question I wanted to answer was, does Arsenal really walk it in? Um, <laughs> and the answer is yes, but uh, so do all the good teams. So, um, you know, and I think now with the, the invention of XG, I mean, it's that good teams create better shot opportunities. So no real surprise, but it it was kind of, I guess, satisfying to say like, hey, this is kind of an unfair criticism of Arsenal. Like they're just trying to create better shot opportunities. Like that's what a good team should be doing. It is
1: really sort of unfair, the hiring advantage that football clubs have, because if you love a football club and they offer you a job, you're not going to say no. Um, so I would imagine it's easy to get talented people like yourself to, to, come over there. But you did go over there, uh, sort of as part of the stats DNA operation. And I think one of the sort of early data analysis work that you were doing was on using something called Markov chains. I read what they are and still don't understand them, <laughs> but in, in sort of understanding what they may have presaged for you in terms of data, it looks a little bit like expected threat now in terms of trying to predict how these unrelated data points are seemingly unrelated data points lead to a better opportunity to either lose possession or create a goal. Very, you know, an easy binary, right? In terms of what can happen in football, you either lose possession or you score a goal. But what this led me to think about is how much data has evolved in football, because coming from American sports, I think data has been around in American sports for a long time and been embraced by American sports. Is there a reason you think that it's been later to come to football and maybe harder to develop. Is there something unique about football you find that makes it a bigger challenge from a data standpoint than maybe some of the American sports where data is much more familiar?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a number of uh, factors that have led to kind of the delayed uptake. Um, The first one is I think the criticism that it's just too fluid. Um, And you know, that's true in a sense, but if you look at hockey or basketball um, those are quite fluid dynamic sports. Um, but then, you know, soccer has the complexity of, you know, 22 players on the pitch rather than, you know, 10 or 12, whatever it is. Um, so it's just a little bit more complex. But I think, you know, really the biggest issue has been that added context around what's happening in the event. Um, so going from, you know, I passed the ball from this location to that location to, um, you know, what you're seeing providers like StatsBomb adding now where they say, okay, well, I passed the ball to you, but you were under pressure or, you know, hear the location of the players around you so that you can kind of add a little bit more context to things and things start making more sense. You know, early on um, there were these kind of nonsensical debates around whether past completion or possession uh, was like a meaningful statistic. And, you know, I think everybody was in agreement that, No, it's not. You can be a good team and maintain possession, but never threaten the goal. And so without that context, you know, it's hard to discern uh, between a team that's just passing the ball around uh, in their own half versus a team that's kind of pushing the ball forward, breaking lines, um, destabilizing the defense and creating opportunities. So, you know, I think that's been one of the advances over the years that's really helped kind of take it to the next level. And, you know, that was one of the big, um, I guess, like appealing things for Arsenal is that StatDNA was collecting this very unique type of context around the events at a time when nobody else was really doing it, and so we could kind of set ourselves apart and say, like, yeah, I can I can figure out like this was a a you know a pass that split three defenders and put you in one on one on goal versus you're still facing you know two blocks of four. You're not going to score from there. So, mm. um, you know, I think at the heart of a lot of these discussions about why you can't use stats, it's really around just missing that type of context. And so, um, as you know, technology changes, you're able to just add more of that information and realize that you're you're actually talking about the same types of issues.
1: So, if you think you have better data <clears throat> than maybe other other organizations have, and you go to a football club and you want to pitch them on your data. Obviously, you're going to talk about w- why you may be able to capture what's happening on the pitch better than than other solutions do. But what I'm curious about is then, what's the pitch in terms of how that helps the club? I think w- what most lay people like myself use data for is to have really fun and totally productive arguments about transfers. Okay. <laughs> but I'm sure that there are myriad ways that clubs can use superior data to create an edge. And obviously all of this is just about an edge, an edge in the market, an edge on the pitch, an edge in preparation. So what are some of the ways that the superior data is implemented? Like when stats DNA is going to Arsenal and saying you should hire us, we can make you better. Is it predominantly about transfer targets? Is it attempting to help with other aspects like tactical preparation? What are are some of the ways that we might be surprised to know that that data is being used or at least being pitched to be used to improve the performance of these clubs.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think still, and probably forever, the highest leverage situation is going to be using it for transfers, whether it's bringing someone in or saying no to someone, because those are the you know, most expensive decisions a football club is going to make year mm-hmm. in year out. Um, and so probably that's like the best starting point for every football club when they are interested in, incorporating data into their process. Um, but there's, you know, probably a, a standard number of areas that they would go from from there. Um, so doing opposition analysis, helping the team prepare for their upcoming, um, upcoming opponent. Um, this is something that you would typically have video analysts working on, um, but you can get a longer term view or maybe a slight um, slightly different perspective if you start bringing in data into that process. Uh, similarly, you can do like a post-match review where you try to objectively understand your, your team's performance. I mean, the coaching staff, they're going to have their opinions. Um, but we all know that like in the heat of battle, those opinions are going to be really biased. So having this data report, um, to kind of take a little bit of the emotion out of it, uh, is something that you'll see at a lot of clubs. And then, you know, they might do that in terms of like periodic reviews, Um, which will then feed into like squad needs, which would then feed into recruitment. Um, And then another area, which is probably one that has a lot of uptake is sports science Um, because the practitioners there, they're used to, to numbers. They're used to data. So they're a bit hungry for someone to come in and help them out and say like, Hey, how can we help reduce injuries? Like how can we understand if we're maximizing performance? Like, what can you tell us about um, you know, the, the busy period and you know how tired our players are gonna get or how much we should rotate? Um, so that's like another big area where you'll tend to see a, a lot of uh, uptake from the data side.
1: Interesting, and so with all of those ways that data can be used to create leverage, um, obviously there has to be an agreement within the organization to use the data in that way. And I would imagine that now within football clubs, you are going to find less resistance than maybe 10 years ago. Can you maybe expand on the evolution of the willingness and the ease with the willingness to use this data and the ease with which it can be incorporated in the process? Like, do you find that today it's almost presumed that this data will be incorporated in all of these ways versus when you started, it had to be sold to the manager or the Director of football, and there wasn't really a director of football at Arsenal at that time. Um, how, how how has that evolved in terms of the battle internally to have a seat at the table and use the data to its to its greatest effect?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think early on, like you had to do a lot of education, and certainly there would be people who were resistant versus people who you know were a little bit more. Uh, willing to sit down and listen and and try to educate themselves. But, you know, if you take XG, like that was a really new concept 10 years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. Nowadays, you can probably walk into a room with almost anybody working in football and they'll at least have heard of it. They might not have a lot of faith in it. It's in the latest
1: FIFA video game for God's I mean, it's terrible, (laughs) but it's in there. (laughs)
2: Yeah, And, and so like, you know, that straight ahead just makes your life a whole lot easier. And then you can, you know, talk to them about it and, understand that like it's not you know trying to say like you're stupid it's basically trying to put a number to what you already intuitively know like people know what, what a good shot opportunity is and you can ask them like oh how many how how likely is that guy to score and they'll be able to assign a rating to it it might not be consistent but they can do that and so you can have conversations like that that are a little bit disarming to them and say like look we're we're trying to do the same thing Um, just via different methods. But like, you know, from a footballing perspective, like we're on the same page. And, you know, I think one thing that really helped us in the early days is doing a lot of listening, Uh, listening to what their their criticisms were and then trying to address them. But then also really making sure that, you know, from a, a footballing perspective, everything made sense. Like if they wanted to know, why was this labeled a good pass and not that one? Like, you had to be able to explain it to them. So, from a data science perspective, like having very interpretable models was important so that you could have that conversation with them. But you know, oftentimes having those discussions, you would say, "Oh, you know, there's actually like a feature missing from this model. Like, we need to account for this situation." Um, and so that's really good because then they feel ownership over the model as well. Like they helped build it and they'll want to use it. Um, so I think, you know, just having those kind of open conversations and I understand like, that's not always possible at every football club, uh, with every person. Um, but really, you know, what I've found successful is there's always going to be that one person that you'll never convince and you shouldn't waste your time trying to convince them. Instead, you should go to the person who's willing to engage in those conversations and and have that talk with you because, you know, at the, the end of the day, like you're all on the same team. And I think there's always going to be people that are hungry to, to find something that's going to help them do their job better. Uh, So they'll be willing to engage on that. And, you know, I I think the last component is like video is such like a invaluable tool. Um, It's really kind of like the best way to speak the same language with everyone where you just sit down and watch clips over and over again and say like, this is what the model says. What do you think? Um, And that way, like, you're taking something from the abstract and putting it into the concrete and they can, I think, really see like how things are working because they're used to watching video. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really progressed, I guess, over the last 10 years.
1: Yeah. I guess the willingness to incorporate it then also requires a responsibility to use the data in the way it's most effective. And I, I think, so it's interesting. Um, the athletic did a, their football tactics podcast did an interview with uh, MK Don's sporting director, Liam Sweeting, and they use uh, data a lot in their process. And he was talking about recruitment and the different ways that data can be used in recruitment. And that I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think there was sort of the suggestion that the wrong way is that the club finds the targets that they want to bring in and then says to the analytics department, sort of, show me the data on this player that I will then use to confirm that I've got the right idea. Whereas Liam Sweeting was saying, we use the data to narrow the field down. And then once we have the targets, the data likes, we go and look at them. I'm curious if, if, firstly, if you agree that that sort of second way is the way that data can be most impactful and the limitations of data at that level in terms of data can maybe show you, narrow the pool to the players that are closer to what you might want, but then, you know, it's not intended to replace then going and looking at what they actually are. I mean, I think there are a lot of people that worry that what we're trying to say with data is, oh, it replaces you having to use your eyes to watch football. I don't think that's ever, I don't think that statement's ever been made, but somehow it's an accusation that's levied. So is that the right way to let the data narrow the pool and then, and then go see if the, the resulting pool of, of players is, is appropriate?
2: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of different ways you could incorporate it into your decision-making process. I think the first process you outlined where the club has already essentially made their decision and just wants the data to confirm or reject, that's incredibly dangerous because um, the data isn't perfect either. Um, mm-hmm. And everybody should be like quite critical of what the data is saying and quite aware of its limitations and shortcomings. And so if you've already kind of come into the process with a decision made and you really like a player, you'll find a reason not to believe what the data is saying. And at that point, like why bother? Like you're just going to do what you were going to do anyway. So,
1: or you can do the P hacking, right? Where you're like, Oh, well, here's some data that shows me what I wanted to see.
2: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's just, you know, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure by kind of not, not realizing how you should be doing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, uh, narrowing of the funnel, I think is a much more common situation these days. And, you know, it has its limitations as well, like particularly around defenders. Um, it's quite difficult to flag up defenders via data. Um, so I had that as a question, so I'm glad you went to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, you have to be careful there as well. And like, I don't think it's a, you know, we're going to start with the data and then have the scouts look at them. It has to be some sort of combination and what you really want is like a healthy discussion between those two departments um, rather than I think you know what Moneyball showed which is like confrontation and and everything now like I, I don't think that's how you want to do it in the modern world I think the modern world you want those two departments working together and understanding like um, this is what I'm seeing this is what you're seeing like um, how can we overlap how can we confirm each other or you know sh- should we flag this up as debate and, you know, kind of a a follow up from there. So, um, you know, there's no, there's no right model, I think, because it is so dependent on, on how the, the club at large is kind of structured. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that you can be, um, I guess, successful without necessarily doing it one way or the other. Um, it really depends on, I think your structure, like not just structure within recruitment, but then, you know, how does the manager fit in? How does the technical director, if you have one fit in, how does the board fit in? Um, Cause those are all people that want information to make the decision as well. Um, so you need to be able to, to kind of incorporate that into how you're structuring things and say like, what's the right level of information to give to each person at what point in the process? Um, Cause I think, you know, another thing is that recruitment doesn't happen in a day. <laughs> like it's a continuous cycle So there's going to be different points throughout that cycle where you're going to want to bring it in.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, the the defender thing is fascinating to me because I also think it shows not, I don't want to say flaw in data, but the evolution of data, like I'll I'll use Shodran Mustafi as an example and not just as a, you know, a punching bag, but obviously a defender that didn't really work out at Arsenal. I think it's fair to say he was a dominant defender on counting stats. And I, I, I'm not going to ask you to answer this because, you know, I certainly don't want to implicate anything, but I sort of have always wondered, did those counting stats weigh in on the decision to go after him, for example, because, you know, tackles, headers, um, you know, he, just anything that could be measured, he measured well on. But the things that can't be measured, obviously, he he didn't do well. And I'm, I'm wondering, is that sort of the next, is that the white space for data in football, is trying to assign value to things where no event occurs, the ability to be in the right space to receive a pass or the ability to be positioned between the ball and, you know, between the goal and the man or some, I'm not, I don't know how to articulate this, which explains how hard it would be to measure. But, you know, one thing that I know with football is there are a lot of firms now trying to do these tracking, you know, tracking data and get better positional information and that's only as good as the the cameras that are set up and i think liverpool works with a company i'm not sure if arsenal does that sets up a camera array um, at anfield and at the training ground to try to better capture the position of each player is this the next sort of new frontier for data to to maybe even using machine learning to identify positions taken up by players where no action is occurring and trying to quantify the value of of things that don't have a specific action associated with them. I don't know if I've explained that well, but maybe you can turn it into a brilliant question with a brilliant answer.
2: Yeah, no, I I think you're absolutely right. And I, I completely understand what you're saying. I mean, and that's, that's been one of the biggest criticism of stats for so long is that so much of the game of football happens off the ball. And we're only looking at what happens on the ball with these traditional event data sets. Um, and so this is kind of the great hope with this tracking data. So uh, I don't know if, Uh, Everyone is aware of this, but Premier League clubs have had access to tracking data uh, for every game in the Premier League going back to the 2015-16 season. So clubs are uh, able to get a lot of information from this type of data set, but it's still unbelievably difficult because, you know, if you take a defender and let's say it's an aggressive centre-back, so they have great counting stats... um, you know one of the areas of weakness for them might be decision making where they overcommit to a tackle when they sh- should have just stayed on their feet and let the play develop um even with tracking data, building a model to say like yes or no, you made the right decision here is just unbelievably difficult so yes like that's the the frontier that everybody would love to go into and and fix and uh you know, solve that problem, but it's unbelievably difficult. And then, you know, with a transfer of a center back like that, there's another complication on top of that, which is, you know, they've been performing at a certain level at a certain team and a certain league and a certain style of play with a certain center back partner. How are they going to come into Arsenal and how are they going to perform? And mm-hmm. that's, you know, again, something that's unbelievably complex um and it's just getting i think worse as (laughs) you know we're starting to see more and more tactical variations um you know so the proliferation of a back five over the last two years really makes you know assessing the performance of center backs and wing backs uh or slash pullbacks incredibly difficult because now you're not just talking about Uh, moving from a team or a league, but like a completely different style of defending. Um, And then, you know, certainly within a back five, like there's many different ways to defend. So, uh, yeah, it's quite quite complex and uh, there's a long way to go before people really nail it, which I think too just kind of like reiterates the point of like, you know, you can't just rely on the data. Like you have to use human beings still. Cause human beings are a lot better, like particularly when you have really smart experienced scouts or, or coaching staff that can say like, no, 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 he really should have just like waited a half second more before making the tackle. Like when they yeah. can see that, um, it's, it's unbelievably helpful because I'm not smart enough to do that.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's particularly relevant even now with Arsenal, because I know when we signed Benjamin White, My concern was, well, here's a guy that was playing in system A, doing X, Y, and Z jobs. And now it looks like he's going to go into system B, maybe doing A, B, and C jobs that are different. How do you draw a line between these two roles and analyze whether he'll be effective at them? And then you have the problem, the opacity of, well, maybe the coach has a, a role specifically in mind for him that will be more similar to what he did in this other system. And you have all of these layers of complexity and variables that I don't think the data has any ability right now in its current state to capture. You know, there's certainly, I think there are data points that are stickier. I tend to think they show up more with attacking players than they do defenders. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Um, you know, One question that I think a lot of people will have, by the way, and this, because this leads to a lot of arguments too. Anytime I think someone uses publicly available data and video, even video that's not, you know, totally publicly available, but sort of publicly available. Like we have a Y scout account. We use Y scout video to do our scouting, uh, and analytics podcasts. And like the combination of Y scout data and what StatsBomb puts out through FB ref and things like that. We think we're able to do a pretty interesting job analyzing stuff. I mean, you look at a guy like Tom Warville, for example, who was the analytics writer for the athletic. He's just been hired to run the analytics department for Red Bull, uh, for RB Leipzig, right? That's a, there's a, there's a lot of stories of people doing public-facing work, winding up in football through that work. So I'm curious how different you think the models and the video and the resources available to the public are versus what clubs are working with for someone who says like, oh, well, obviously the clubs have access to stuff you don't. How much stuff do the clubs have? And I realize that's the edge, right? That's the edge that a stats DNA or someone else. Tries to bring to the club to say we can create a model for you that is better than other models that is different. But how different do you think it is? How how close is the distance between publicly available data and video tools versus what clubs are working with um, you know, generally?
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple couple big differences. I mean, so StatDNA we were kind of a unique uh, situation in that you know Arsenal acquired their whole data company. So we were able to collect, you know, whatever data we could change the specification of the data we were collecting based on whatever requirement we had. Whereas, you know, most other clubs and certainly people in the public, you have no control over that. If you want to know, um, whether they hit it with, you know, the laces or the instep, like that's not something you can just go to stats bomb and say, Hey, can you start collecting this for me? Um, not, not that (laughs) we collected that by the way. No,
1: I I get it. Yeah. I get your point. (laughs)
2: Um, you know, so, but, you know, that that's kind of a rarity. You know, I think some of the, the clubs that are owned by betting companies, they'll have similar setups um, where they're collecting a little bit more information. But it's definitely the exception, not the norm. Um, but in terms of, you know, for, let's say, your average football club compared to the public, um, one of the big differences is they're going to have access to, like, the raw event information, which you can't get from FB Ref. And why that's important is you can build kind of more complex metrics or models on on top of that. So, you know, let's say hypothetically you wanted to know, like, um, how many times did a team, you know, attack or like get into the box after a switch of play? Like that's something you could only do uh, with the raw data, not from kind of the uh, pre-aggregated data that most most public people have access to. Um, the other big difference, as we kind of mentioned earlier is the tracking data. So that's a big tool for a lot of the clubs that they've had access to for years and years and years. So they're going to be way beyond the public who just now in like the last year or two have been getting access to, you know, a small sample of tracking data files, but certainly not like a comprehensive season. Um, and I, I think, you know, Beyond just like the raw data sources that you have access to, I think there's two big differences. One is um, this is what people are doing for their you know full time job, so uh, they're going to have a lot more time to to think about these things and develop the models. So that's why, you know, I think that the common perception is that clubs are ahead of the public. It's, you know, they just have more people thinking and doing doing work on this type of data, um, mm. and then the other big difference I think is that they're going to have access to the coaching staff and understand like, well, what's the context behind this situation? Like, what were your objectives for this match? Were we able to meet them? Um, you know, you can, you know, I can't, can't think of a good example now, but you know uh, an outsider could view a game as kind of a poor performance because the team lost, um, whereas the coaching staff might say, like, you know, we we played to the game plan, um, we hit all of our KPIs, we just got unlucky. Um, so for them, they might feel that as, you know, not a successful game, but not the the end of the world because the underlying performance was good. Um, mm. And that's that's the type of analysis that's really difficult to do as an outsider, not really understanding what the team's objective were for that day. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think you know the same goes for recruitment, where people don't necessarily have the context around the long-term strategic plan of the club in terms of you know why are you re- uh, renewing this person and not selling them. Um, there's oftentimes a lot more context within the club that might make that opinion or, or that decision seem <laughs> a little a little bit less foolish.
1: Yeah, no that that makes sense. I you know one thing that that leads me to also. Uh, by the way, for people who are not initiated with acronyms, KPIs, key performance indicators, right? I think, hopefully, I'm right. <laughs> um, uh, is, there's this dance that I feel like analytics and data has to do to be accepted, where it has to be sold in a way that non-technical people can digest it. But in doing that, there's the risk of, of contaminating it in, in a sense that it winds up being used wrong. Uh, two examples, uh, radars right? These radar or spider charts. Yeah. Radars are very popular because they're very visual, but radars, depending on how the data is laid out, can give a misleading, a misleading picture of a player or of a, a situation or a club. And then another example is expected goals. Expected goals can be a really powerful tool, but it's now something that's being used literally like, not just game by game, like half by half. You have accounts tweeting out what the XG at halftime was, and I get that it's a neat shorthand to sort of understand something, but I also don't think that XG was intended to be used you know, in single game form, let alone a half. So do you think that there is this challenge of needing to package data so that it can be um, not just understood, but adopted by the wider footballing community? But in doing that, that sometimes there's a danger of it being used wrong, which then undermines the data because people can point to it and say that doesn't make sense. So like, how do you first of all, maybe I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, just tell me, but do you think that there is that, that tension of the data becoming more widely adopted, but in doing so maybe being used in a way it's not intended to be?
2: Yeah, I think it's absolutely a danger. And, you know, I think anybody who's going to go work for a club, the first thing they need to do is go on kind of an education campaign. Um, I think, you know, we're at the point now where publicly available data is so accessible that, you know, even if maybe a club doesn't have accounts with a data provider, like people are going on the Internet and kind of doing their own rogue <laughs> data science without necessarily understanding fully what they're doing. And so I think it's really important that like there are these kind of education processes in place with the key decision makers in terms of like, you know, this is how much we should read into this number. This is how much we should be panicking if we have a low XG one game, you know, don't, don't panic <laughs> yeah. at all. Um, but you know, trying to stay ahead of it because I think the danger now is a lot of people are very eager. Like they, they want to do their jobs really well. And so they'll like, if they don't have access to the resources of like a, you know, experienced data scientist, they'll go out on their own and start playing around with things in kind of these, these dangerous manners. Um, and, the data providers themselves aren't helping because uh, everybody has their own XG model and they don't really want to talk about why their model is better or worse. Well, they probably want to talk about why their model is better, but never want to talk about why their model Hmm. is worse than the other person. And so people don't necessarily understand the difference and why you should trust one data provider more than another. Like XG isn't like batting average in baseball where there's like a universal Truth, like that number can vary quite a bit depending on who you're getting the data from and what model they're using. And I don't think people take that seriously enough. Um, So that's, you know, I think a a big concern for the industry going forward. And, you know, that can set things back a lot where if you're making decisions on bad data because you don't fully understand what it means, then you're going to say, oh, like, why am I bothering with this at all? Uh, Which is, you know quite unfortunate. But, you know, I, I think as, as the industry develops, like there's going to be more and more people embedded in clubs that have the background and the knowledge to help, help educate people.
1: Yeah. And I won't take up too much of your time. I really do appreciate it. Um, just a, a couple of quick things. One thing in terms of sample size, like I always hear the data community being really careful to point out that small sample sizes are dangerous. And then you'll hear the comment, like, even one season is a small sample size. And there's a part of me that's like, yes, I totally understand that from a data standpoint. But you can't tell a club that, right? You can't go to a club and be like, don't worry. I know you almost got relegated this season. All your players are terrible. But the data is not confirming anything yet because it's small samples. They need answers that fit into season-long packages. And I'm wondering, like, is that that sort of a problem? Because, you know, you mentioned baseball. I mean, you have 182 games. You can have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of at-bats for a player, for example, to not only create these— these truths like batting average, but to look at stats that are really predictive and, and really reliable because of the sample size. I mean, it, it is sort of incumbent upon the data scientists working at clubs to provide answers in a shorter window. Otherwise, what's the point, right? I mean, is, is, that, is that a big problem? Because you, you really can't tell the club, hey, don't worry. Three seasons from now, I'll definitely be able to tell you what's happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge problem. It's why I often refer to what I do as an art more than a science. Um, mm. You're never going to have as much data as you want because there's always going to be some sort of context or something where you want to split <laughs> what little data you have into even smaller samples. Um, so if you take, for example, let's say you want to get a player from uh, Eredivisie or, or Portugal, the quality of opposition in those leagues varies significantly where there's going to be a handful of teams that are, you know, top tier quality and then the rest of the teams are, are pretty low. So, you know, you have to make a decision about how you want to handle that. Do you only focus on the games where they're playing high quality opposition or do you use everything and say, this is more information, but we know it's going to be skewed slightly in favor of, of this player because they're playing such low opposition. So There's, you know, a thousand decisions like that you have to make every day. Um, I think one really powerful thing is to say, like, I don't know. There's definitely going to be situations where it's unclear you don't have enough data and you just can't really say one way or the other. Um, But more often than not, you're kind of working with people and say, like, yes, this is imperfect data. We would love to have more. But given this limited data, it's better than nothing. Let's, you know, think about what this means, think about factors that could be altering this or, you know, whatnot. And I think, again, this comes back to working with the scouts because scouts have an even smaller sample size, right? Like they're only going to watch a player a handful of times, if that. Um, and so how can you kind of, you know, supplement each other to to come up with an answer, but, you know, <sighs> This is this is why nobody is perfect in the transfer market. Uh, mm. Everybody is is going to make mistakes, but you know you just want to get your process to be better than it was before. Um, so it's not striving for perfection; it's striving for improvement.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that's a, a good way to put it. I mean, when you so the the club that obviously I point to a lot, and people hate hearing it, and it's one they could point to a lot. What Liverpool have achieved? Um, do you think that people overindex that success as being some like holy grail for for data for analytics success i mean like they did have a lot of things sort of break right for them when i look at clubs like brentford and brighton and mk dons and clubs that are using data at lower levels of football to create an edge i think there's more edge to be found at that level right because one really good player that was under the radar that you find can move the needle massively when you're trying to go from 5th to first in the premier league. I don't think that edge is as significant, but Liverpool stand in opposition to that hypothesis. So how do you think about the diminishing returns of data at the most elite levels? And in particular, the, the paragon that, that is Liverpool in terms of what they've accomplished and whether that's maybe overstated.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think certainly what Liverpool have accomplished is amazing and, and something that a lot of teams should look to, um, I don't know how much of that can be attributed to analytics, but rather mm-hmm. just the holistic process, right? Like they had the courage and conviction to sell Coutinho at a high um, that, like a lot of clubs, I think would have held on to him a little bit more and said, "No, he's he's kind of key to us. Like we're scared to lose him." And then they just reinvested that money really smartly, and they did that, you know, over and over again, selling players at their peak when most clubs, I think, would have would have been scared to do that. Um, so I think they have a really good process and yeah, you know, there's obviously going to be a lot of luck that plays into this type of success. Um, you know, I think what's going to be interesting is, is how they can sustain that level of success. I think this is where a lot of teams have always struggled. You know, how can you, uh, not just do it once, but then sustain that level of competitive competitiveness in the squad so that you're perennially fighting for the, the title um so I think that's still to be seen. Um mm. but in terms of you know, you know, where are the edges for um teams like you know, Liverpool is competing with City and they again have a very good analytics department, but it's much easier for them to say like, you know, we're gonna buy three players at sixty million pounds and if we make a mistake with one of them we still have these two other amazing athletes. Um, so, so there's a little bit less of an edge there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think clubs like Brighton and Brentford, um, they, they're probably what most clubs would want to look towards in terms of overachieving for, for the resources, financial resources that they have and, and doing it pretty consistently. I mean, Brentford's rise from the, the championship to premier league is just astonishing and um, brighten what they're doing this season. You know, it's been a, a long time coming. And again, you know, can they sustain it? That's yet to be seen. Um, but I think they're both doing, you know, pretty good jobs. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they have, you know, great internal structures in terms of decision making.
1: Yeah. And, and I think what's hard is if you rewind 10 years and you say there's going to be one club using analytics and none of the other clubs are going to be using it. Well, then you have an incredible edge. But then if you fast forward 10 years and you say there are 20 clubs in the Premier League and 19 of them are using analytics. Sure, some of the departments are going to be better than others. Some of the data scientists are going to be better than others. But great data scientists providing useful uh, information that's integrated into the way the club operates versus pretty good data scientists providing pretty good information that's being integrated in the way the club operates. That's not the same edge as one club using it and one club not, if that makes sense. And so I just think the margins narrow because these clubs are so much sharper than they used to be. And that's my perception. I mean, do you think I'm over – I'm giving them too much credit? It feels to me like all these clubs are getting sharper, but maybe maybe they just have more money, and I'm misinterpreting that as, as being sharper. It sure looks like it to me.
2: No, no, I, I would absolutely agree. And when you kind of look at the transfers – you know, in and out of the Premier League, I, I think, you know, five years ago, you could be like, Oh my God, like, what are these guys doing? How can they be paying that much money for this guy that we know is, is terrible? Um, whereas now I think you can look at most teams recruitment and be like, yep. You know, I disagree with this a little bit, but I don't hate it. I
1: get it. it. I get the yeah. process here, yeah, the methodology. Um, it, and by the way, I think you said something really important about admitting what you don't know, if there is one thing that I think turns people off to data, people that are not predisposed to loving it, I'm talking about fans now, it's being told, I know what's right because I looked at data and you didn't. I think people hate the perception that data solved football, and that if you aren't looking at it as your primary piece of your process in watching football and analyzing football, then you're a you know you're a rube and you don't know what you're talking about and I, I do think that that. That has been off-putting to some people that are like, well, I watch a lot of football and I feel like I know football. And then, you know, some people that say, Well, I, I look at the data and you don't know what you're talking about. And so I think resisting the resisting the very sort of toxic instinct to somehow hold yourself up as a better fan or a more knowledgeable fan because you can go to fbref.com, I think is pretty important, just in terms of people feeling more at ease with this stuff. Um I, I guess if you had like if you could blink into existence the next big breakthrough in data, and, and if you can't answer this because it's what you're working on now and you don't want to give away a secret, fair enough. But like, is there is there your dream question to answer a problem to solve? One thing I always thought that would be super fun to have in football would be like w- the war stat in baseball, you know, wins above replacement, right? This idea yeah. of a replacement level player and measuring a player against that. It's so hard to create a baseline, but that baseline is so valuable in terms of talking about you know, what, what that player adds or, or detracts? I mean, is there something like that you'd love to see or sort of a, a, wish, a wish list you have of the, of the next breakthrough?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the million-dollar or maybe billion-dollar question that a lot of people are <laughs> trying to answer that's still really difficult is, you know, what happens when I take this player from this environment and put them elsewhere? Um, there's certain tools in place to help you but none of them that are like particularly accurate where you can say like, yes, I'm very confident that if we spend 80 million pounds on this player, they're going to be lights out. Um, so I think for me, for a lot of people, that's probably like the biggest question left to, to answer or answer more accurately. Fair enough. All right.
1: Can, can I trouble you for a Santi Cazorla anecdote before you go or, or no? <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah. So uh, (laughs) um, I guess, like, you know, talking about, um, you know, how much people, uh, I guess, are resistant to stats, you know, I just remember one day reading on some online forum, like, oh, stats can never, you know, quantify, like, the beauty of Santi Cazorla, like, splitting two defenders and putting Mm -hmm. it right on, you know, the player's foot. And I was just, you know, looking at the data I had, and I was like, oh, I can just, with a click of a button, pull up 50 clips. Of exactly that situation because like that's exactly what we're doing like you know I love I love Sandy Gazzarla and I would absolutely want to attribute to him so much creativity and success and you know I think that's the difference between uh you know just the the kind of really basic stats that um people hate like past completion versus kind of the the more advanced complicated models that that we're starting to see now. That's really cool. Did you worry about that in any respect? Like one thing that um Clive, who's
1: on our pod t- has talked about is like, are we getting to a point or going to reach a point where players get savvy and they say, hey, these are three stats I know that really pop when people are looking at the transfer market, and I can I can hack these. like I can I can play a more progressive path. you know like is there is there a possibility that players, as they become more familiar with the data being used to evaluate them, will target that data? And is that even a bad thing if it makes them a better player, if that makes sense? Like can players hack this and sort of make themselves look better on a spreadsheet?
2: Yeah. I mean, that was something I used to worry about. I don't, I don't think it's as much of a concern right now. And so, you know, for, for something like, you know, playing progressive passes or something like that, like we'll also look at retention. So having this kind of like balanced scorecard for a player where it's like, if you get into the final third and you're just always trying to play that killer pass, cause you know, if it comes off, it'll look really good for the transfer market. Like you'll get penalized for all those times you just gave away the ball. So um, I, I think for clever clubs, it would be difficult to, to game.
1: Interesting. All right. Well, I've kept you a lot longer than I intended. And I appreciate you not just disconnecting in in ra- rage quitting, as I might say in the video game <laughs> language. Um, I-, I love this conversation. I-, I love hearing your approach to it. I-, I thank you for the time you spent at the club and how wonderful that must have been to work at the club you love. I mean, I-, I know you don't want to go too much into Arsenal anecdotes, but I'm sure that was a real joy to be able to be a part of the club every day.
2: Yeah. I mean, literally a dream come true. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's, that's so cool to hear. And, and we will wait with bated breath for your next big breakthrough, solving those big mysteries and, uh, answering the billion dollar question. And when you do, um, you know, if you need to break off any of that billion dollars and, and spend it somewhere and there's any way that we can be a part of that, we'd be delighted to help you spend your billion dollars. (laughs) Good luck that Sarah, Sarah Rudd, um, uh, again, former head of analytics at Arsenal currently, uh, doing things that I have been sworn to secrecy about, but which will come to light in time. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Okay, that's going to do it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, We will definitely have more. There'll be a regular podcast previewing the Liverpool match. There will be a live stream on Friday and just so much more. Don't forget to get your um, thoughts in to the voicemail box if you're a patron, so we can get your thoughts about the Liverpool match into the next podcast as well. You can find that information uh, over on the Patreon side of things. But wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe. I hope you're healthy. I hope you're happy. Uh, we love you so much for being here and we'll continue to try to put out all different kinds of interviews and content and episodes and shows and things that uh, are hopefully enriching and informative and, and helpful and just uh, make our journey together as Arsenal fans interesting. So I uh, hope you're doing well. We love you and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Liverpool 0.